This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. ESG, it's everywhere. Uh, in the property context, green leases are back in a bigger return than take that. And landlords and tenants are both talking about environmental considerations in some unexpected ways. But for today's property patter, we want to start with some basics to understand ESG and its potential impact on the property industry. So for that purpose, I'm joined today by David Tonks, who's Head of Repurposing at Cushman and Wakefield, and Kerry Stairs, our Responsible Business Partner at Charles Russell Speechleys. So thank you both for uh, joining me today. Um, Kerry, if I start with you, there's been a lot of talk lately about ESG, but it's fair to say that not everybody really knows what it is. Um, and perhaps some people are wondering where on earth has this come from? Um, why are these initials so important? Um, but let's start at the beginning. What does ESG stand for? And what do these strands mean in sort of general brief terms? Um, hi, Emma. Hi, David. Thanks very much for having me. Um, I might just start by explaining what a, a responsible business partner is <laughs> at Charles Russell Speechleys. Um, my role shakes down into two very broad areas of work. The first is working with stakeholders all across our firm to understand and improve our own impact as a business, both environmental and social. And the second is working with our clients and our intermediaries to understand where they are on issues of responsible business and making sure that we as a firm are doing what we need to do in order to help them along that journey. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, there is just so much talk about ESG at the moment. You have to be living under a rock not to have come across it in some form in your in your day to day. ESG stands for environmental, social and governance. It's a term that's used to mean different things by different people, which is not very helpful. But I think if I'm um, trying to simplify, I would say that ESG has a narrow, more specific meaning and a more general and wide ranging one. So the narrower and more specific use of ESG describes a particular type of investment strategy. So many investors are these days increasingly taking an ESG integration approach to allocating their capital. In other words, they're using data and benchmarks about a company's environmental, social and governance credentials as part of their anal analysis of the, of the investment risk and return of a particular asset. And then they're packaging up um, so-called sustainable or ESG investment products um, on that basis. So that's the narrow meaning. Um, and the industry that's grown up around ESG investment has come in for some very serious flack in, in recent years. Uh, most of it concerned with whether ESG data and ratings and benchmarks really tell us anything at all that's meaningful um, about real world social and environmental impact. That's a whole other series of, of podcasts as <laughs> we park that issue right there. Um, Used in its broadest sense, however, and this is the sense in which I tend to use it in my day to day and in which I'm going to use it in this podcast, ESG is really just a simple shorthand for the, for the range of different types of impact that a business or activity has on people and planet. And I expect that most listeners will be broadly familiar with the most common examples of E, environmental, S, social and G governance issues. So E, for example, includes, of course, climate change. You know, how is a business preparing to transition to a net zero economy, reducing its carbon emissions uh, and identifying the risks that climate change in its broadest sense poses to its business and its bottom line? 
Um, the S broadly is is about the impact that a business has on people. So that could be your people as a business, your employees. Um, so issues like health and safety, well-being, living wage, and so on. Uh, it could be your impact on your customers. It could be your impact on local communities where your business has direct impact on people who live in and around your activity. Um, and it includes your impact on society more broadly, either because you uh, you market and sell particular services or goods, um, or because you have a long supply chain, for example, and you interact with, with people all along that supply chain. And then last but not least, um, governance issues include things like executive pay and incentives, um, the composition and diversity of your board, bribery and corruption, tax transparency, and so on. Um, now that's just a, that's a rocket through some of um, the most common ESNG issues. Can I just make two general points about the exercise of categorizing issues in this way? The first is that we tend to list them as ESNG issues, but it's, it's critical to understand that these are not hermetically sealed categories. These issues overlap and intersect in so many different ways. Um, and the second is that not every one of these potential ES or G issues is going to be relevant in the same way to every type of business. What's best practice is to conduct a materiality assessment for your business. Um, and again, very broadly, that means trying to understand which ESG issues are most uh, material to your bottom line as a business, given your, your sector and your business model and so on. And the second um, element of materiality is where as a business are you likely to have most real world impact on people or planet? And once you've done that materiality assessment, you then have a set of ES or G issues that you know need to direct your focus. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been increasing reference to ESG issues and the role they're having in that business context. I mean, wh why do you think we've seen that increasing reference? What sort of impact is ESG already having on businesses? It sounds like quite a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, I think that's understating it. Um, I think one way of trying to answer that question is to think about it from two angles. So the first is, what does this new ESG conscious climate mean for a business in terms of managing its risk? And the second angle is, what commercial opportunities does that create for businesses? From a risk perspective, the first thing to mention is always legal and regulatory risk. Um, we have seen a proliferation of ESG law and regulation in, in recent years. Uh, again, generalizing that, that law and regulation tends to focus on ESG related disclosures. So it requires companies to say more to their stakeholders and to the market about their environmental and social impact. And it also tends to focus uh, in terms of its direct impact, its direct scope on the world's most economically significant companies. So um, that's the large, the listed multinationals. Um, so that those companies are facing more legal and regulatory risk on ESG issues. Does that mean that ESG is only impacting on companies at that end of the corporate ecosystem? Not in the slightest. So um, ESG is fast becoming an organizing construct, if you like, for commercial decision-making of all kinds. So investors are scrutinizing their portfolio companies and prospective investees on their ESG credentials. And that's not least because many large institutional investors are bitten by that law and regulatory change that I was just talking about, they're required to tell more, to say more about the environmental and social credentials of their portfolio. So it follows that they require that information 
from their investee companies. Um, lenders are increasingly linking cost of capital to ESG credentials. And we've seen an explosion of sustainability linked or ESG linked lending in recent years. Um, ESG credentials are starting to drive M&A deal flow. So companies are looking to offload, for example, more carbon intensive activities or parts of their business. And conversely, to acquire businesses with really strong ESG credentials in order to boost the overall ESG performance of their operations. Um, consumers are demanding it. Uh, commercial counterparties are demanding better performance on ESG. Um, and insurers and credit ratings agencies, for example, are starting to factor ESG into their risk assessment. So from a whole range of different angles um, for businesses of all types and sizes, ESG is creating additional risk that needs to be managed. But as I say, um, it's important not just to think about it as creating risk that needs to be managed, because this is a climate that creates huge commercial opportunities for companies that are a little bit further ahead in their thinking on this. Um, those opportunities include making your business a more investable proposition. As I've said, um, ESG is something that investors are increasingly scrutinizing and capital is being increasingly redirected to companies that can show good, strong sustainability performance. Um, but other companies are focusing on developing products and services that meet a particular environmental or social need. Um, so there is very much a, a world of opportunities to be capitalized on uh, for business in this space as well. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And uh, bringing us kind of back to property, I mean, landlord and tenant businesses will be affected by varying to varying degrees by ESG concerns. But I mean, if we think, for example, of offices, um, I think that's probably quite a good example of how environmental concerns may play out. We, you know, we all know there was a lot of doom prophesied for the office lettings market when the pandemic first hit. But I think it's fair to say that being stuck at home during the miserable days of lockdown three made many office workers uh, perhaps more appreciative of their office environment. Um, but, but, you know, with, with where we are now, we, we're really yet to see how demand for office space plays out going forward. And there's bound to be regional variations. Um, David, I'm interested in whether you think that environmental and sustainability concerns are playing any role in how office tenants choose their properties. Hi, Emmett. Yes. Um, to answer your point directly, I think they're having a, a quite profound effect and um, the pace of change is only accelerating. I think it's worth just stepping back a little bit, perhaps, just to give the answer some, some context. And the, the current demand in the office sector is currently shaped by the need to accommodate the change in working practices that we're all seeing. Um, clearly, the, the rate of change, as I say, differs between sectors, but it, it's not a great deal of this is new. A lot of the change in the, um, in the working environment was evident probably in 2019, but accelerated by the pandemic. To amplify the point, that those businesses that have entered the market over the past 12 months have sought to create an environment that offers a credible alternative to working from home, really. As you quite rightly say, there was definite fatigue in the home environment and people were craving something different, but not different for different sake. It had to be better and offer a different set of attributes. And the, the net effect has been to, uh, to drive demand towards better quality space that offers great access to amenity, improved accessibility, strong profile for the business, and of course, overall, in the context of today's discussion, leading environmental credentials, which are, for reasons that Kerry's already flagged, pervading all sorts of business, not just the, uh, the property strategy. In, in very round figures over the past sort of 12 months, about two thirds of satisfied demand has, uh, has acquired what we in the property industry describe as grade A accommodation. Typically, that's better quality space. And that, that's over the last 12 months. Total demand's almost back to pre-pandemic levels. So it's a sensible sample size. There's a, there's a meaningful set of data in there. The consolidation of the estate that we're seeing, which typically involves less space but better space, 
is, is most evident in the larger markets. Uh, those markets that are offering new or extensively refurbished space where strong sustainability and environmental credentials are the norm. Once again, that's probably something that we've only just seen become the point, probably past the tipping point over the past, uh, past 12 months. It's, it's also interesting to note that an increasing proportion of vacant space around the UK, not just, not just in individual markets, but around the UK as a whole, is older secondary space that attracts diminishing amounts of, of demand and hence the appetite for repurposing of stock generally. But as I say, the, the, the shift in demand is definitely towards the, the better end of the spectrum. So the way in which sustainability and environmental credentials are measured is continuing to involve. I, I suspect everyone listening to this, this podcast is familiar with accreditations such as EPC and BRIAM and some of the more recent entrants, the likes of LEED and Neighbour, they're all well-recognised measurements of energy efficiency. But what we are finding is occupiers are also keen to understand the quality of the environment, which is where the likes of smart space or well-certified or aerated come into play, all of which look at how a building can promote the building's health, well-being and productivity of colleagues, the actual environment in, inside the space. The point about how it might play out is quite interesting, though, because the other important environmental metric that we're going to see is carbon. Increasingly, it's on everyone's um, consideration list, and I'm certain that we'll increasingly be asked to to look at embedded carbon alongside carbon in use. Um, clearly, that's going to be a reference to um, refurbishment as opposed to redevelopment, where a, a viable outcome for refurbs is possible. But we'll perhaps touch upon that. The move towards an, an obviously sustainable estate is being driven by a number of stakeholder groups and carries reference most of them. The, the the sustainable office footprint frequently aligns well with the board's business plan that inevitably will highlight climate change as a threat uh, and equally the depth of sustainability measures that are, are adopted by any business are judged by owners clients potential recruits that's a big one at the moment and the existing workforce it, it, it's also true to say that the sustainable office is likely to offer potential running cost benefits and that's not to be underestimated to, to go back to where we started though the pace of change is quickening and by way of an example the majority of occupiers that i speak to are already considering the likes of an epc rating of b to be the absolute minimum and yet MIS standard compliance suggests that detailing a B or better is not, not yet a regulatory requirement for another eight years. So the occupiers tend to be in front of what regulation is dictating, but for obvious and very, very direct reasons. So I suppose to summarize that, and it is dangerous summarizing because every occupier has got a different list of criteria, that occupiers prioritize three, three different sets of drivers really, but the, the environmental and sustainable concerns fall into three distinct categories. I think the first one, as I say, is benefits associated with cost in use. That, that's very real. The second one is standalone ambitions to operate more sustainably, once again, for reasons that we've touched upon. But th- there's a third category here, and it, it, it's also true that as occupational demand moves towards better quality space, there's an inevitable impact in the sustainability and environmental characteristics of the estate as the substantial majority of new and refurbished stock has, uh, has invested heavily in this area to ensure that the strongest possible demand for space is, uh, is captured. Um, once again, reference to Kerry's point about not just occup- occupiers, but the investment fraternity, which are, um, are very keen for the long-term benefits of their estate to, um, to, to meet the standards that occupiers are demanding. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a really good point, actually, about the, the occupiers obviously driving the demand. You know, so it reminds me of when the uh, manufacturers of deodorants said that they couldn't get rid of the CFCs. And so we all just bought a roll on and thought, well, we're just not using a spray deodorant then. And it was amazing how quickly suddenly it wasn't going to take as long uh, after all to uh, get rid of the CFCs. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? You know, the government set a certain timetable, but actually the occupier demand might drive something more quickly. And, you know, what sort of change do you think we are likely to see, you know, whether it's with 
with office space or other space, you know, what, what are developers going to have to have in mind when they're designing these various buildings of the future? Well, almost an echo of the previous point, Emma, I think the, uh, the development community has really grasped hold of this nettle and they're, they're driving change as quickly as possible. We, we, we touched upon sustainability measures a moment ago. As I say, there are certain standards that are required by regulation, but there are others that are demanded by the, the occupier market. The, the trend, I think, of the, and the part of the market that I think is evolving most quickly is, um, is increasing attention upon the broadest measurement of carbon. And this applies to all user groups, all sectors, not just offices. It goes through retail and health and living and all of the sectors. It, it, it's not always the case that modernization or repurposing will result in redevelopment. There is a drive in the property sector towards the refurbishment or adaptation of existing structures, which obviously has significant amounts of embedded carbon. There'll always be a case for redevelopment, ground up redevelopment where a structure is obsolete or value can be captured by increasing massing, for example. And it may be the case that new development in, in enables new construction techniques to be deployed or, or smart building tech to be, uh, to be rolled out. But there are also measures in place for, for recognizing the benefits of retaining an existing structure. Uh, I'm sure that over the, the near term, we'll all become familiar with the, the London Energy Transformation Initiative and the, the RICS Building Carbon Database as occupiers and investors consider both embedded carbon and carbon in use. So interesting consideration there in the, in the development world, working in conjunction with contractors, obviously. It, it, in much the same way as occupiers attach importance to carbon, ESG and sustainability credentials, it's equally the case that the investment market is traveling in the same direction. And as the impact of MEES takes effect, it will soon be the case that owners, investors, developers, they're not gonna be rewarded for providing green buildings. This will become the norm but they will be penalized if space does not meet required standards. That, that's something that we're, I, I think we're past the pivot point actually, I think we're already there. And, and it, it's certainly true that the Mies incremental steps are, are driving investment in the building fabric, which I'm sure was a, a stated objective by the government when this, uh, when this regulation was being drafted. In, in practical terms though, looking at building design, we're increasingly seeing that buildings are entirely electric. I think gas will disappear from buildings. We're seeing a push towards sustainable environments that will result in more mixed-use development. That's a, a reference to the environment in its general terms, not just inside the space. We're also seeing open space designed into buildings, and that's another health and well-being reference. And the increasing prevalence of green leases, which you touched upon earlier, that will ensure that design standards are widely maintained during the lifespan of a building. That's very interesting. I think it's going to be a very interesting time over the next few years. To finish up, I mean, even if our uh, listeners are not persuaded by perhaps David's evidence of the potential financial benefits and interestingly financial risks, which may flow um, from having a greater or lesser focus on the environmental impact of buildings. I mean, as we've discussed, the government looks likely to address its increasing concerns over ESG through regulation. Perhaps if we leave property aside for a moment. I mean, Kerry, what do you think are, you know, some key areas that you think businesses need to be prepared for? Can I, can I first just echo the point that you've both made in different ways, which is that, that while law and regulation is a really important driver of risk and opportunity for businesses on ESG issues, it really isn't the only, or perhaps not even the most important driver. Um, it tends to provide a, a floor and not a ceiling now for what's expected of companies, because as we've all talked about, there's just a much wider universe of stakeholders that has a much wider set of expectations of, of business that go far beyond whatever it is that law and regulation requires. So I completely um, 
echo the points that you already made there it, about the importance of looking beyond law and regulation to other important factors at play. Um, I think you're also right, Emma, to frame this about businesses getting prepared and future-proofing, because that's not to say at all that there aren't many businesses out there that are investing in good, strong environmental and social impact because it's the right thing to do. Um, but the reality is you, you don't actually have to care deeply about values and ethics here in order for your business to be coming under some serious scrutiny and pressure on ESG issues. And if businesses are not feeling that scrutiny now, they very soon will be. Will be. So it's savvy and strategic business leaders are absolutely thinking about this as a future-proofing issue. Um, there's so much coming down the pipeline, it's almost impossible <laughs> to identify um, a, a top three, but um, let me have a go. I would say that in general terms, businesses should be prepared for very much more regulation and enforcement, uh, particularly on ESG issues. And I say that because even with the proliferation of commitments that companies are making to reduce carbon emissions and achieve net zero, it's um, generally acknowledged that there's a very big gap still between where we need to be as a as a planet, as a business community on um, on carbon emissions reduction, and where and where we where we actually are, and that gap, I think, will need to be closed by much more regulation. Um, I think um, the moves that we're seeing in the UK, for example, are just the beginning of the picture. Certain companies from April this year, for example, will, will be required to report their climate risk in line with the recommendations of the TCFD, or the, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And the government has made clear that that's just the first step in a much broader series of sustainability disclosure requirements that are coming down the track for businesses in the UK, including a general expectation that most businesses will have to publish at some stage their net zero carbon emissions transition strategy. Um, and that's just the UK picture. You know, we're seeing similar developments uh, in the EU. And just this week, the SEC in the US published their climate disclosure proposal. So we're going to see much more of this type of regulation. We're going to see much more regulation and enforcement also to tackle the problem of greenwashing, which I'm sure is a phenomenon that most um, listeners would have heard about. In the UK, we expect something called a, a green taxonomy in the next couple of years, effectively a classification system telling businesses at what they can and can't legitimately describe as green or sustainable. And um, that UK taxonomy will, will draw heavily from the EU version, which the UK had quite a great deal of input into putting together. Um, and regulators across all industries are cracking down on this problem of greenwashing more and more, um, identifying companies that are, are putting out, frankly, unsubstantiated uh, environmental credentials. So that's development one, more regulation, more enforcement. Development two, I think, companies need to be prepared for much more downward pressure on the supply chain to demonstrate strong EST credentials. And that's in part, as I mentioned earlier, because if you require more disclosure from the largest companies in the ecosystem, it follows that they in turn will require more information from those that supply them goods and services. So even if you're not bitten directly by law and regulation, you can expect to start to see in commercial contracts uh, requirements uh, to demonstrate your own carbon emissions reduction, uh, at the very least to provide more information about what it is that you're, you're doing. Um, and larger companies are starting to make this a condition of doing business. The, sort of, the table stakes for being part of my supply chain is that you can um, evidence your E, S and G impacts. And then the third thing I think companies need to be generally bearing in mind and getting ready to deal with is, is a much stronger focus on the S, the social issues 
uh, in the ESG uh, equation. Um, in the UK, in the short term, that's um, going to include um, more onerous requirements on modern slavery reporting. The government has promised to beef up the current Modern Slavery Act 2015. So those changes are coming down the track and businesses need to be thinking about those now. Um, but that's part of a wider movement, um, both at the EU level and at national level all over the world, towards something that's known as mandatory human rights due diligence, which in very simple terms will mean businesses doing a very deep dive to understand the impacts that their business operations and their supply chain are having on people and then to disclose that. Now, we don't expect that tomorrow or in the next couple of months, but that is the direction of travel on the S. And we've had standards and frameworks for a number of years that the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, for example, which have sought to give businesses a framework within which to understand and address their impacts on people. But the move is very much towards um, soft, taking soft standards and transmuting those into hard and fast rules. And that's what the mandatory human rights disclosure regime that we see coming down the track will do. That's brilliant, Kerry. Thank you very much. Not easy <laughs> to pick out, pick out some top concerns. Um, that's been a really helpful overview of what ESG is about um, and how it's driving and may drive the property market going forward. So thank you very much both. Um, this certainly won't be the last podcast we record on ESG issues uh, for the property market. So please watch this space for more discussion about these interesting topics. Um, and let us know if there's anything in particular that you you'd like to hear about in this space. Other than that, uh, please take care for now and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.